Who is John Galt? Why are you asking me that? Who is John Galt? No, I asked you a question. Who, who are you? Who is this John Galt fellow? Why are you asking about him? Who is John Galt? Are you an idiot? Who's your daddy? <sighs> You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello and welcome to this episode of Outside of a Dog. My name is Jonas Hawk. I have not produced anything worthwhile in my life, uh, except for this podcast. And I'm Christian Schneider, and I might actually just bugger off and go to Atlantis if that's okay. Don't we all want to do that? Yes, dear listeners, uh, this is our... Episode on Atlas Shrugged, which we intended to be a kind of political election thing, and then the election happened, and we, along with the rest of the world, at least that's what it feels like in our bubble, sort of lost the will to live. But here we are, talking about this horrible, horrible, horrible book. Hey, wait, 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 wait. We're not supposed to give our judgments yet. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry to rant about it, but I think objectively this book is pretty terrible. I will try to keep a level head. Thank you for reminding me that I'm supposed to do that. And I will try not to let the fact that this is a pile of excrement color my performance in this episode too much. Usually excrement plays a role in what you say anyway, so why should it be different this time? Yeah, but usually I talk shit, not about shit. Except for when you suggest that we read another one of those French erotic novels which feature it prominently. We might need that as a palate cleanser for that. But yeah, let's let's keep let's, objectively discussing Atlas Yes, Park. let's at least attempt it. And let's talk about the book as a book first. Let's divorce it from its ideological reprehensiveness and talk about the story. What is the story of Atlas Shrugged? Atlas Shrugged is set in a kind of dystopian future world. It's never really specified, but it has a certain sci-fi dystopia vibe about it. And in this future, the United States rely on the railway. Okay, uh, first kind of odd thing. But anyway, let's roll with it. And the novel's protagonist, Dagny Taggart, is an executive in Taggart Rail, one of the major companies that run those railways. She's one of the few people who still believes that making profit and that working for your own good is a good thing, rather than the received wisdom of this version of the United States, that you always have to think of your neighbor, the person who is less fortunate than you, that you always have to think of the greater good. Over the course of the novel, she battles against these forces of control, these sort of crypto-socialists, though they're never called by that name, looters, as they're referred to over the course of the novel. She's joined by Hank Reardon, a brilliant steel manufacturer who creates a new kind of metal, and she discovers that there is a colony of brilliant industrialists who have gone on strike, led by John Gall, this enigmatic figure who want to work for their own profit and who don't want to bow to the expectations of society and instead live somewhere off in the mountains 
being self-sufficient and brilliant at everything. And over the course of the novel, the society collapses. They try to force John Gold to become the new economic dictator, but he would rather endure torture than bow to their will, and he refuses to let his mind be used by the state. And in the end, the system is overthrown, and while the future looks uncertain, at least now they will be able to rebuild it. Brilliant people that they quite definitely are. I don't know, is that a good description? This, this, this story makes no sense. Also, you can tell from the scope that this is a big book and we should put a disclaimer before the rest of our discussion. I didn't finish it. Jonas didn't finish it. We so couldn't. We could because the way that this book is written makes it impossible for you to keep going after a while. Eventually, we just decided we're going to read as much of it as makes up the entirety of Dracula the book that we read before. So that was about 15% of this novel. And then we just called it quits because we just couldn't go on. And we will address that issue later on, why we actually couldn't go on. But before that, let's talk about the person who's actually responsible for this giant book, which also had, still has a, a giant influence, apparently. The author, Ayn Rand, was actually born Alisa Zinoviewna Rosenbaum in St. Petersburg during the Tsarist rule of Russia. She came from a Jewish family, and when the Bolshevik Revolution swept over the country, she experienced the violent and oppressive aspect of the communist revolution. Her family's possessions were taken away, and she emigrated to the United States, where she kept an intense hatred against all forms of socialism, communism, egalitarianism. She worked as a screenwriter in Hollywood for a while and actually became one of the most important conservative voices in Hollywood at that time, which became especially virulent after the Second World War, when the kind of witch hunt in Hollywood began. And she became an author. The most famous novel, Atlas Shrugged, was published in 1957. She also is the author of Anthem, a science fiction novel, and The Fountainhead. Both of them take up many ideas that are also there in Atlas Shrugged. And actually, there is a whole philosophy that is kind of based on Ayn Rand's ideas, the philosophy that is called objectivism. And we might actually have to summarize very, very, very briefly what objectivism means. Basically, the objective part is supposed to be about how the world really is, that there is no God, that there is no supernatural aspect of living, there's just humanity. So far, I agree. This seems very reasonable and uh, something that I can wholeheartedly subscribe to. Where it comes to conflict for me is the conclusion she draws from this. The conclusion she draws is that the best thing for humanity is to be happy. And how are you happy? Well, if you take care of yourself and you don't give any damn about anyone else. Being egoistic is natural, being egoistic is good, and the best way to live this out is obviously capitalism, where being egoistic means making money, competing with others, where naturally the better capitalist will make more money, and the poor, well, they just weren't good enough. Social Darwinism, basically. So this idea plays an important part in Ayn Rand's work and in her legacy, and her legacy is actually enormous. It's baffling that, that somebody whose life's philosophy was based on the idea that there is no God should be the darling of the modern Republican Party, but she really is. Republicans 
love her work and espouse it in public. Paul Ryan, for example, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, was one of the most powerful men in the US, is a huge fan of her. He uh, says that he loves her work and that he lives his life by it. I'm not quite sure she would like that because she was very critical of Ronald Reagan. She was pro-choice and uh, she definitely would have her problems with the evangelicals in the Republican Party nowadays. She was definitely a very colorful character with lots of very colorful ideas. Coming back to the book, we should address the elephant in the room. As we said, we didn't finish it. Jonas, you mentioned that we couldn't finish it. Maybe we have the same reasons, maybe we have different reasons. What made you say, no, no, I can't take it anymore? For me, it was just the infuriating nature of the read. I just wanted to roll my eyes so hard that they got stuck at the back of my head. It's just ridiculous. This vision of the world that she creates is is laughable if it weren't so sad that it has such a huge influence. I mentioned that it is sort of a science fiction setting, and that works to an extent, where then these mysterious elements creep in, this question, who is John Galt, that is repeated again and again, but where the characters feel it has significance, and where the characters feel that something isn't right, oh yeah, that sounds intriguing on the face of it. But then it's completely destroyed because it's obvious what is wrong. It's obvious that what is wrong is that people are just too damn nice. And nobody who looks at the world can come to that conclusion, in, in my view. I just cannot fathom how somebody could look at the United States in the 50s and say our problem is that we care too much for those who are weaker than us. Makes no sense, in my view. Also, for example, um, in the book, Mexico is a people's republic. Oh, so uh, all those people in the US look at Mexico and say, oh, they're so great, they're so brilliant, they will overtake us in the very near future. Who can look at America in the 19th and 20th century and think that they would, on the one hand, let the people's republic spring up at their borders when in the 50s they already shut down the socialist ambitions in Iran and then later on, they shut down the socialist ambitions all over the world, not least at all, of all in Chile, very violently, and think that this is in any way a realistic prospect. So it doesn't work on that level. Okay, let's say it's an allegory. Let's say it is an allegory that you shouldn't be too nice to people. Well, that also makes absolutely no sense. In this world, people constantly say, oh, you know, we should think of those who are less fortunate than us, and we shouldn't work for our own profit. And that is presented as something horrible. But it is never said why. It is just assumed that you agree with these characters. And nobody really profits from that. The people in Washington, the people in power, do just take things from rich individuals, from good creators, from leaders, you could say. But why do they do that? Who profits? Nobody, it seems. Now, if she had made this about people who enriched themselves, if this had been about incompetent bureaucrats just working to fill their own pockets, just being corrupt and trying to help each other for their own personal gain, I would have bought it. I would have thought, ah, yes, you know, this is a bit of a simplistic view, but this is something that I recognize as something that actually really happens in the world. But nobody has a good time in this. Nobody profits from this. And that is just stupid. And that is why I just felt that I couldn't continue reading this book that has paper-thin characters, a ridiculous premise, and that is written in an excruciatingly dull style. Uh, Christian, what prevented you from finishing this piece of work? Elaborate on that, because I think you haven't talked enough about why you hate this book. 
<laughs> yeah, sorry. That was a proper brand rant. And many <laughs> of the aspects that you mentioned, I actually would agree with. But I realized when I kind of analyzed my reading behavior that sometimes there were these points where I really had to angrily put the book away because of the same feelings. But on the other hand, I realized I didn't finish the book because it was so incredibly detailed. I think that's the thing that kept me more from finishing this book. Because we, have had, we haven't had problems with politically or ethically questionable books in the past. I mean, we read James Bond and we read Dracula and we read The 120 Days of Sodom. And there are horrible things in there as well and horrible minds behind those books. But the thing with Atlas Shrugged is that there's a reason why this book is so incredibly thick, that she takes many, many words and pages to describe everything. The world, the way the industry works in the world, the scenes, the people within the scenes. We get flashbacks, we get detailed descriptions of how people behave. And it was just too much. And I think that actually is connected to what you said, this political disgust you feel regarding these ideas, that someone spends so much time elaborating on that, that every detail that is presented is actually infused with that spirit in this idea. So it's not just that it is horrible ideas, or at least horrible to us, but it is that there's nothing or at least at first glance, there seems to be nothing that doesn't kind of add to this thing. So the idea is hammered into your head with every single scene. For example, um, you brought up James Bond. Great example of a book that I really, really enjoyed, but really disagreed with as well in as much as the, if you want to call it, message. But there, it wasn't hammered home quite like that. There, it also had an actual story that also had good scenes that were entertaining to read. As you said, here, everything is about this point. For example, she even describes the music of this world, and she describes the music that is popular and generally accepted as 12-tone assonant music that isn't really pleasant to listen to. And Dagny and her friends are the only ones brilliant and clever enough to realize that proper music with melodies is actually much better. And that is just so reminiscent of these tired attacks on modern art or modern music that you sort of look at and think, oh yeah, great. Great work. Yeah, okay. This this has really enriched the conversation. I think that's a neat way to kind of introduce yeah, the style and the setting of the book. We've already mentioned certain parts. And I think it's really interesting that you mentioned that this is a kind of a science fiction novel. And I agree. I actually had the feeling that it feels much more sci-fi than it actually is. You mentioned it's some sort of future world. I don't necessarily agree. For me, this world rather feels very antiquated. I was surprised, actually, to see that it was written or published, at least, in 1957, because the world she describes, it felt more like an idea from the beginning of the century, from the 20s or 30s. But that also adds to this somehow alienating character, that it feels like science fiction, that it is like a future-oriented past that never was a steam or diesel punk world. And I think that is actually an aspect, and you mentioned it as well, that is fascinating. There is this world that functions according to certain rules. Actually, that was an aspect I I thought you could have done something quite interesting with. You could write an, an actually good book about this 
quite fascinating world. And there are actually also aspects in the novel itself where I would have liked to re read more. But she just steamrolls over that, basically, and, and brings more stuff about the, the characters, about the past, about the philosophy and so on, that it kind of gets drowned in all of that. You know what? You just gave me an idea. Why don't we do the elementary school thing? You have to say that you're sorry. So, Ayn Rand, I'm sorry, and I'm willing to believe that you are not the vicious, horrible person that you seem to be, based on my reading of your novel. And why don't we each say one thing that we like about this book? So, you've already said, there is this kind of setting that could be interesting, but you feel it's not executed very well. And the way you describe it, It sounds really interesting. Yeah, I, I, I am intrigued by that. And if somebody was to adapt Atlas Shrugged into a steampunk film, maybe give us the first decent steampunk film of all time, there's definitely potential there. And what I say I like is also this setting, this mystery that she sort of builds up and then doesn't do anything with. Who is John Galt? Oh, he's this guy who sits around in the cafeteria all day and he's also a brilliant engineer, but... Also, he just works uh, in, in the manufacturing? Well, okay. In general, I thought there were quite a few of these hints towards something potentially fascinating that are even in these first 15% that we kind of read of the book are squashed or really don't seem to pay off. And reading the summary really don't pay off that much. The same with the style, actually. Because I mentioned I felt kind of overwhelmed by the book. At the same time, there are hints again that Ayn Rand is not a bad writer. She sometimes manages to convey how a room looks, or how the atmosphere of a certain situation is in a, in a very visual way. I think it shows that she also worked in film because you can always imagine what it looks like. The thing is though, she doesn't stop. And so you get this kind of maybe sensory overload or something like that. If you ask me, does she write well? I would have to say yes and definitely no. On the one hand, it's a horrible style. On the other hand, I couldn't say that it really is bad writing because she, she shows she can actually write. Well, she can describe, as you said, but she cannot write characters for shit, for example. No one in this novel has any depth. They are all just skin deep. The characters are all either completely good or completely lazy and evil. Not just bad, but evil. It's just populated with these brilliant people. Hank Reardon, John Gold, the literal ubermensch. Also, every one of those brilliant men is described as tall, gaunt, and blonde. Now, you wouldn't mind that, I, I guess. Listeners who don't know us just have to look at the picture on the website to know that this is basically what Christian looks like. But I think, uh, basically, this is a book about Aryans, isn't it? You, you say it like it's a bad thing. <laughs> Obviously, I agree. Uh, don't, don't even joke the, about that. Don't even joke about that anymore. I'm sorry, but it's... it's... But I agree. There is something kind of strange that you have a, a Jewish author writing about these yeah ubermensch characters that they all have impossibly high cheekbones and are strong and beautiful and have amazing sex with each other where i wouldn't agree actually is the characters and this is i think the first kind of battle we'll have to fight i don't think the characters are that shallow i agree that they are very clearly positioned according to ideological lines and it's very clear that one party is right and correct and the other one is 
definitely not correct. But I think that on the one hand, there are some characters that are more ambivalent. For example, the very first character we meet, Eddie Willis, who works for Dagny Taggart, he is described as someone who actually agrees with Dagny, working against her brother, James, who's the kind of most evil character, you might say. But he's also described not as one of these superhuman characters. He's kind of a, a normal guy. And reading the summary, he also seems to kind of despair afterwards because he doesn't fit in in that war between the gold disciples and the looters. He tries to do his thing and doesn't really work. But but he still absolutely worships Dagny and and he just completely follows her and believes in everything that she says. And he's not one of those doers. Yeah, that's that's true, right. But true. he's that's my point. That the position he kind of takes that is a pure and clear and black and white position. But even the kind of good characters, the heroes we meet, Dagny. Hank Reardon, Francisco Dancona, who is this kind of Argentinian capitalist who also was Daphne's first lover. There is a bit more than them just being model characters, especially Dagny, because we see a lot of things from her perspective and we see her past. There are interesting facets there. She's not just this strong, amazing woman. We see her weaknesses and how she became who she is. And, and that actually makes it more than just stereotype. The thing, though, is that the characters are not alone. They're not just characters. They're always part of the ideology. They always represent ideas. And that crushes the character in the end, I think. Francisco Dancona, for example, could be a fascinating character. This kind of superhuman guy who always transgresses every border and is successful in everything. But he's also kind of a dick. Yes, yeah. you would he's have to give him some nice. sort of weakness, you know? You would have to give him some sort of interesting flaw that would make him worthwhile. But as it is, he's just dull. I don't think he's dull. He does have weaknesses. But in the end, it's not important. What is important is that he is basically the guide for Dagny towards John Gold. And that is where the characters finally become very black and white, very right or wrong. And again, I, I have a feeling that there could be something more interesting there. So why are we even talking about this book? Well, because it is so very relevant. As we've said, the modern-day Republicans worship at the altar of Ayn Rand. And John Oliver also asked on his show, how is this still a thing? And I really have to wonder, because I don't see how anyone could read this and think, oh, yeah, this is my book. This is this speaks to my soul. Anyone be beyond the age of, of 13, maybe. And not, not, not to diss teenagers, because some teenagers are very intelligent and clever. But I think a 13-year-old me might have gravitated more towards this idea that I'm brilliant and everyone else is stupid. Although I kind of disagree with this idea. Many critics of the book have said, oh, yeah, this is the kind of thing uh, uh, an alienated teenager would read. I actually disagree. I think a teenager would give up even more quickly than, than we did. I mean, I read other this... books about why I was brilliant and everyone else was stupid, you know? But, I mean, we did an episode on Catcher in the Rye already. Is this book actually as relevant? Because the Republicans are now completely in power, more or less, in the US. They control both houses of Congress and they have the presidency. But can we explain Donald Trump by looking at Ayn Rand? That would have been my question, and I probably would say no. I agree, no. Because you mentioned that more traditional Republicans are fans of Ayn Rand. But Ayn Rand's ideas, again, seem rather antiquated. 
compared to this wild post-factual social media republicanism that has swept Donald Trump in, into the presidency. The ideas that Trump has are much more populist, are much more id. To, to paraphrase the big Lebowski, say what you want about objectivists, but at least it's still an ethos. True. However, I think that because Trump is so devoid of ideology, we have to look very closely at the ideologies of the people around him. We have to look very closely at the fascism of people like Steve Bannon, for example. And I know that I'm using a big word here, but um, I think it is the only appropriate word to use, really. Uh, we have to look at the objectivism, at the cold-hearted, unrelenting capitalism of people like Paul Ryan. Because Donald Trump is not going to do a lot of governing. I think it's going to be a situation where he is the figurehead and he makes America great again, whatever that means at the current moment. And actually, the people around him will be pulling the strings. And that is dangerous. That is very dangerous. So I think engaging with Ayn Rand and her ideology is still important. Maybe not to, to explain Donald Trump, but to explain the Republican Party. I would agree to a certain extent. However, I think it's still kind of reductive to see objectivism as this kind of catch-all philosophy that explains this modern neocon Republican Party. It's just one You're piece right. of the puzzle. What I find interesting is that we could compare the notion of objectivism and how it sees capitalism towards neoliberalism in general. Because actually, I think many aspects of today's society are much closer to a kind of basic objectivist view than you might think. And I don't want to be all Marxist here and say that go, capitalism go ahead. is go the ahead. root of all evil. But I think in recent years, it has become very clear that we are so deep into a neoliberal system of not just economy, but society, that we don't even realize that anymore. And that's the thing that sometimes scares me, that I myself am part of that machinery. Hopefully, I'm not an objectivist, but that I am closer to this very egoistic, opportunistic spirit than I might actually think. And I find it very fascinating that the world Ayn Rand describes is this world that is on the brink of total economic crisis. And that is basically the world we've been living in since 2008, at least. She sees it as this, the world basically has to break down in order for something new to come. Atlas Shrugged means that a mensch kind of shrugs off the world and that means he can be free and the world can be born anew. And I think many people nowadays actually have the same hope. And that is the dangerous thing. This is the kind of feeding ground for these fascist ideas that come suddenly mainstream. But other people are definitely thrown under the bus. And if we succumb to the temptation to, to throw them under the bus... What Jonas said next was so insightful and complex that apparently our recording couldn't take it and spontaneously decided to break off. We're very sorry for that. Basically, what we talked about in our last recording was how bleak of an outlook that whole thing was, but that there was still hope for the world, and that there's definitely hope in our recommendations. And I mentioned two works in particular that do a... Uh, back to me. Better job than Atlas Shrugged explaining the unease you have with two egalitarian ideas, this kind of defense of 
liberty and human spirit do a better job than Ayn Rand. The book I'm recommending is Sewer, Gas and Electric, the Public Works Trilogy by Matt Ruff. And this is a really madcap dystopian picture. He mixes all kinds of science fiction stuff in there, cyberpunk, the Illuminatus books, a lot of Pynchon, a lot of Vonnegut, and of course, also objectivist ideas and Ayn Rand, or rather the hologram of Ayn Rand. And there's a rather detailed summary of Atlas Shrugged, which probably is better to read than the actual book. You can see that he really, really disagrees with her ideas and actually characters in the book criticize Atlas Shrugged for its ridiculousness. And the other thing, I already mentioned Kurt Vonnegut's name, and he has published a short story called Harrison Bergeron, which is very brief. You can read it in just 10 minutes or so. And it's about a world where everyone is supposed to be equal and people who are more talented or more beautiful actually have to wear weights on their body or have to wear masks so you don't see how talented and beautiful you actually are. And it is an extremely satirical view on this world. It's actually darkly funny and it satirizes the ideas of Ayn Rand that there you can get rid of that by some sort of spirited ubermensch thing going on. But on the other hand, the story still also shows that a totalitarian, egalitarian society wouldn't work and that freedom and the freedom of difference is still something that needs to be protected. So, Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut. My recommendation, as quite often, is... The film a bit you actually more. haven't seen. No. <laughs> No, no, a film that I have seen, actually uh, several films that I have seen several times. It's a bit more prosaic than Christian's highfalutin recommendations. Uh, namely, I would recommend what I consider to be one of the greatest artistic endeavors uh, humanity has undertaken, certainly in the last decades. And by now you probably know what it is, Christian. And namely, I recommend watching a couple of movies from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Partly because they're just escapist fun, and we all need that in these times, don't we? But also because they are actually really very good, in my opinion. And specifically, in the context of Ayn Rand, I'd like to mention Iron Man 1 and 2, and Captain America Civil War. Because those are films that deal with an arrogant asshole who is brilliant and knows that he is and won't let anyone tell him what to do. Hmm, sounds kind of randish. But then he realizes that with great power comes great responsibility and he decides to take up that responsibility and actually use his talent to build something for good. The government then wants him to give up this new material, this new technology that he has created and he refuses. Uh, however, then, in the newest addition to the three films that I'm specifically recommending, Captain America Civil War, he agrees that actually the government has an important role to play, and it is Steve Rogers, Captain America, who was created by the government, who disagrees with him. These films, whilst maybe not being the most sophisticated investigation of these questions, while maybe not being the most complicated, are still very interesting, and I think very relevant, because they are so popular and populist to an extent. Investigations of responsibility, of power, of genius. And also, that's just really good fun. And then there's, there's that scene at the airport where they're like, and then Ant-Man is there. And, you know, so, yeah. Anyway, I just really like them. I gathered as much. I actually would like to know what Ayn Rand would have made of superhero films, whether she would have thought them to be a kind of 
objectivist ideal or whether she would have seen them as liberal fantasies. Actually, I think Ayn Rand's life in general is something that's worth of being turned into a film because regardless of her literature, her life and her opinions are absolutely fascinating. I think next in line after that, L. Ron Hubbard biopic that will never be made. Uh, you are aware of the existence of the master? The master cannot get close to how crazy his life was. But anyway, we've had enough craziness and crazy political ideas for now. If you want more craziness from us or less craziness, then why not tell us? You can reach us via email at outsideofadogcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Outside of a Hound, and you can find us on iTunes where we invite you to subscribe and rate our podcasts, uh, anything between five and five stars. And come back for our next episode on... Oh, Christian, what is it going to be on? Craziness, political ideas, a dystopian view on our society. How about we do the same thing from the left with more sex and rock and roll and paranoia and conspiracy theories? Doesn't that sound great? Let's read The Crying of Lot 49 by Thomas Pynchon. I was hoping you were going for the Hunger Games. Shit, okay. Uh, yeah, I guess. Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com. The yeah. green waters of the Chicago River on St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> oh, Is there a better yeah. symbol for the wandering Irishman? No, actually, um, actually, the green waters of the Chicago River symbolize, um, you know, during the famine, they went across the ocean on ships, but they, they were all so severely underfed that... Once they had a bit of food again on their ships, um, they had very severe diarrhea and it was colored greenish. So the, the ships left like a green trail behind them in the ocean. No.